0: From the high desert of northern Mexico, this is Circle for Original Thinking. I'm your host, Glenn Apedicio-Perry. Welcome to Circle for Original Thinking, America's electronic talking circle for visionary thinkers. An open forum for fresh ideas and timeless wisdom applied to today's political and ecological challenges. Each week we bring together creative thinkers from a variety of different traditions, We ask the hard questions on the important issues of the day. Political polarization, climate change, virulent viruses, and other symptoms of humanity being out of balance with the natural world. Our goal is to recreate a whole and sacred America, a new and improved version of E Pluribus Unum, from the many to the one, and this time not leave anybody out. Join us as we embark on this quest. We live in an era where nearly every governor, state congressperson, or mayor supports maximum economic growth. doesn't matter what party you're from, whether you support lower taxes or more social programs. Economic growth covers up all sins. Increasingly, it does not matter what country you are from. Economic growth is promoted as the way forward, the way to becoming more prosperous, the way to becoming a more developed nation. But economic growth is not the answer. In the words of Warren Lyons, we are acting like jockeys, whipping our horses to go faster and faster, unaware that the finish line is a brick wall. How do we get people to understand we cannot grow infinitely on a finite planet? How do we get people to understand that without fertile soil, clean air, and water, all life is endangered, including human life? When will we we remember that humans are made of light, air, water, and earth? That what we do to the elements, we do to ourselves. Why has the Western developed world, ever since the Industrial Revolution, been relentlessly pursuing progress? Why do we put our short-term economic goals first while ignoring the despoilation of the planet? It is not out of malice. It is not entirely out of fear, racism, or greed. It is more that we don't know a different way. We had a dream, a belief that increased goods and services made for a higher standard of living and that was all that mattered. We have been chasing that dream ever since. In in that dream, we don't count our blessings. We don't think what we have now is is sufficient. We want more. The more, the better. And the faster we get there and the more convenient, the better. Fortunately, my two honored guests know that this is not the only way to live. And they've met people who have another dream. And that dream changed the way these guests lived, both John and Bill. All And all over the world, indigenous peoples carry a different dream, a dream that sees all of creation as our relatives, a dream that respects the right of everything to exist. A dream that sees a way to live life differently, a way to perceive differently, a way to look at the world in a joyful, ecstatic manner, a way to be fully alive. What will it take to change our dream? How do we dance and sing a new reality into being? Join us as we delve into this today with John Perkins and Bill Pfeiffer next. Now I I want to introduce uh, our guests First, Bill Pfeiffer, who I met through uh, indigenous elder that we both knew and loved, the late Grandfather Leon Secatero, headman of the Canyoncito Band of Navajo. And in a moment I'm going to say a prayer. I don't normally say a prayer um, live, but uh, you know or, or when, we're, uh, when we're recording, but I'm going to because I'm moved to today, and I want to invite Grandfather Leon to come in and join the conversation. So Bill, Bill Pfeiffer, um, otherwise known as Sky Otter, is a founder of the Sacred Earth Network, or SEN, which continues to implement leading-edge visions for over 25 years. And in that time, Bill has made Russia a second home, having traveled there 44 times, assisting environmental and indigenous movements through SEN, And that's where he acquired um, extensive encounters and, he would say, training with Siberian shamans. Bill regularly leads workshops in spiritual ecology, breathwork, and men's work. He has partnered with Joanna Macy, John Perkins, and John Seed on experiential workshops. His book, Wild Earth, Wild Soul, a manual for an ecstatic culture, has been met with high acclaim. John Perkins, not coincidentally, wrote the foreword. And John talked about the common bond that formed between them over how to preserve ancient wisdom and adapt it to the modern West. I've read Bill's book and reviewed it for Amazon. I, I, I gave it a rave review. I mean, what I, I think what I said is this book is one of the most succinct, articulate, erudite, compassionate, and inspired arguments for an imperative shift in consciousness. So welcome, Bill. Now I'd like to introduce John Perkins. Uh, uh, John began his career as a chief economist at a major international consulting firm, firm advising the World Bank, United Nations, IMF, U.S. Treasury Department, and Fortune 500 corporations, as well as countries, Africa, Asia, Latin America, in the Middle East. And he was working directly with heads of states and CEOs of these major companies. He wrote about all of this in a famous and controversial book with the provocative title Confessions Confessions of an Economic Hitman, which is one of the most eye-opening true stories ever published about how world governments and economies operate and John's role in executing that, a role that he later came to regret. Now, Confessions of an Economic Hitman was on the New York Times bestseller list for 73 weeks that's a long time. That's more than a year. Uh, it's been translated into 35 languages. John has written many other books, including books on indigenous cultures and transformation, including Shapeshifting, The World Is As You Dream It, navigation, Spirit of the Shuar, and The Stress-Free Habit. And he has been featured on ABC, NBC, CNN, NPR, A&E, The History Channel, Time, New York Times, the list goes on, as well as in uh, uh, numerous documentaries. And as impressive as that is, that's not the entire reason why I've invited John on the show. I'm, I'm, as I told him before we started recording, I'm, I'm most impressed by the epiphany that he had, and the courage he had to, to find a different vision of how to change the dream of the world. And he's done great work as the founder and board member of Dream Change and the Pachamama Alliance. Uh, tremendous nonprofit organizations and the, and other wor- this work has led to special recognition, such as the Leno Ono Grant for Peace and the Rainforest Action Network challenging business as usual Award in short and I, 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 it 's a long introduction today, but you know i 'm really inspired by these guests, and i don 't want to shorten their introductions too much so i 'm delighted to have both John and Bill on the show for their shared vision. For establishing the world that future generations will want to inherit so so welcome how is everybody doing today did I lose you Bill I'm doing
1: uh, I'm doing great <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm here I don't know what happened to Bill but I'm
0: here I lost his image but I think he's still here I think he's I think he's there I think he you might have uh, uh, I hope so
1: now, I, I think Bill Bill is lives on that distant planet I think called Vermont, doesn't he? <laughs>
0: yeah, he lives in Vermont. Okay. Um, the, I'm wh- from
1: Vermont, New Hampshire myself so I well, can... I can okay, that so
0: I'm going to say a prayer. Ah, so. oh, beloved Creator. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this blessing. Thank you for the blessing of being able to Join in conversation with with John and Bill. Thank you. Thank you, Creator, for the gift of life. Thank you for the the light in the in the stars, the light in the sun, the light in our solar plexus, the light of the central fire. Thank you for the breathing of our air, the prana the nu of the ruach. That connects us all. Thank you for the waters everywhere, the waters above the sky, under the earth, and the rivers, streams, lakes, and oceans. The water in our heart that connects us to the heartbeat of nature. Thank you for those waters that communicate with each other. Thank you for Pachamama, Mother Earth, that we're born from, that we return to. Thank you, Mother Earth. Thank you for the support that you give us. Thank you for the the critters on the earth. Thank you for the earthworms named after her mother. Thank you for the earthworms. Thank you for the mushrooms, the fungi. And thank you for the even the viruses and the bacteria because that is the, that's what's pushing evolution. Thank you for germs that germinate and give us life. Thank you for all these things and may we remember that we're all interconnected. And may we also, while we're remembering that we're all interconnected, we pray for the Internet gods to help uh, Bill Pfeiffer today with an unstable Internet connection. If that is meant to be stable, and that would be lovely so that we can all join and hear each other. All right. Thank you. Welcome. Welcome. Ah, yeah, I want to begin with gratitude because that's really what makes everything possible um, next, I want to ask uh you, John, about your experience as a as uh what you describe as an economic hitman and how that impacted your encounters with indigenous peoples um, please uh, explain to our audience what you mean when you say economic hitman and give us a little hint of how you were moved to change your own dream and um in a different direction
1: all right go ahead thank you and i want to stop (laughs) by explaining that you may hear this yowling in the background that's my cat whose name is jaggy because she is very much like a jaguar and uh she she came into our house on the day that the book Touching the Jaguar was published and she's sweet and beautiful and also semi-feral and right now she's just demanding to get into my room Uh, but we don't want her in this room so I apologize for her you can probably hear her in the background she'll calm down eventually Economic Hitman so yeah, my real title was uh, Chief Economist at this major international consulting firm out of Boston, Massachusetts Uh, but And I had a staff of anywhere up to 50 people at different times. Our job, my job, was to identify countries with resources our corporations covet, like oil. Uh, And then to arrange a huge loan to a country that had those resources, uh, like, say, Ecuador, uh, and from the World Bank or one of its sister organizations. But the money never actually went to the country. Instead, it went... To our own corporations to build big infrastructure projects in those countries power plants industrial parks highways things that benefited a few wealthy families in the country the ones that owned the industries and the commercial establishments and the banks that benefited from these infrastructure projects and they made huge profits for our companies that built those projects uh, but the majority of the people suffered because money was diverted from health, education, and other social services to pay the interest on the debt. And in the end, the principal could never be paid off. So we'd go back usually in the guise of the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, and say, okay, we'll we'll restructure your loan, but under these conditionalities, uh, you've got to sell your oil or whatever the resource was real cheap to our corporations without environmental and social regulations or minimizing them. Uh, you've got to privatize your public sector businesses, your your schools and your your hospitals and your, uh, educa- your perhaps your jails, uh, your water and sewage systems, and sell them cheap to our investors. Uh, allow us to build military bases on your soil. Vote with us at the next United Nations vote against Cuba or whatever. And so in that way, we were really creating, we were really creating what you could call a. A global empire. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very old story. It goes back to the ancient Persians and Romans, and we, we basically just refined that story after World after, after uh, the Vietnam War, when we realized we weren't winning. That we couldn't win the Vietnam War. Uh, we realized that the military option, which was the traditional way of making all this happen, was <laughs> no longer a good option for us. And also the threat of nuclear ho- holocaust, nuclear war. So instead, this, we refine this, this, this process of using this economic approach rather than, rather than the less, less subtle approach, let's say, of, of just militarily taking over countries. And, you know, after 9-11, the military came back in, and in recent times with Afghanistan and Iraq and, and so on, uh, we've been using both approaches. So it's, it's, uh, you know, it's an interesting time to be in where we're going through this, and now China's gotten in on the deal. I will mention one other thing. That behind the economic hitman stood what we call the jackals. And these are CIA-sponsored or usually not actually official employees of the CIA that contracted. They may have been trained by the CIA. They're people that overthrow governments or assassinate their leaders. And unfortunately, the United States has done a lot of this. And we've admitted to it with our of Guatemala and Allende of of Chile, and Mossadegh, hmm. Iran and ZM of Vietnam, and on and on and on. Uh, so, my job was fairly easy. I was to convince leaders of countries, take these huge loans, and you and your family who own the businesses are going to make a lot of money out of this. Uh, hire our companies to do this. Let us steal your resources, basically, while you get richer and richer. And, or, if you don't do that, these guys, these jackals will come in, and they can either overthrow you, or maybe they'll assassinate you that's but that's 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 a long story that's the short version that's
0: it that's (laughs) it it's still a mind-blowing story just simply because a lot of people including myself had really no idea until reading your book it was an eye-opening book how that might work um and you know, most people on an emotional level, when they hear foreign aid or something, they, they, they love it. I mean, I wonder what you would say about what's happening right now with the uh, G7, you know, and their, and maybe vaccines or something, you know. Um, is this going to be an excuse for indebtedness to America? Do you, w- you think that's happening right now?
1: Well, it, 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 yes, it already is happening, and we've seen... You know, this pandemic has really shown us the inequalities of how the rich countries uh, get the vaccine and the poor countries don't. And now we're talking about distributing to them, them, but it's going to take a long time. And who knows what kinds of uh, changes in policy will demand uh, when that happens. Hopefully not a lot. And I will say there is a very good side to some of the American uh, foreign aid. We do do some good things. Uh, There's no question about it so what i've described as economic hitman policy is a very is a very it's a macro policy within that there are micro policies, some of which uh, do some good things i explain i talk about it in, in my book the new confessions of the economic hitman some good projects we did in panama etc and i also want to say glenn mm-hmm. that there are a lot of really good people at the world bank in the imf and in all these agencies who believe like i did that they're doing the right thing I thought at the beginning, for, for more than 60% of my career as an, as an economic hitman, chief economist, I thought I was doing the right thing because the model that we're taught in business school and the World Bank promotes is exactly that. If you want to help a, a poor country get more prosperous, invest huge amounts of money in infrastructure. And we can show statistically that that increases GDP, the growth goes to, goes to domestic product. What... I realized after many years in this business, is increasing GDP, is a, is a reflection of how much wealthier the wealthy are getting. It doesn't include the majority of the people, and so the story of the increasing prosperity for everyone was a lie. The story oh. that we were increasing GDP was the truth. And for example, if you take the United States, we've got three individuals who have as much wealth as half the population of the United right. States. If those three individuals uh... made ten percent return on their assets last year and half the country lost three percent we would still show a growth of something close to four percent so it would look like the whole country was doing better when in fact half the country was doing a lot worse and just three people were really doing well
0: okay and i want to bring in bill now um, and uh, just uh... just a brief time ago uh, You know joe biden was over there in russia confronting vladimir putin and i know that you've been to russia 44 times which is a little bit uh mind-blowing to me i mean i'm not sure i've been anywhere 44 times so (laughs) i i really uh i understand that you're i want you to take us through how you got there the first time and i and I understand it was ecological, not political. But I I want you to take us through that background and experience with Russia and how you came to make such a strong Siberian-shamanic connection. And if you want to comment on anything on Russia right now, that's good, too. But uh, I turn it over to you, Bill.
2: Thanks, Glenn. John, good to see you. Uh, very uh yeah, this is a juicy conversation, and your question now could take me an hour, so I'm going to try to be as concise as I can, which is that um, I survived, as you two did, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that left a, a tremendous impression on my little young nervous system. My parents turned ashen white. And so um, this specter of nuclear annihilation has kind of been with me and with us uh, our whole lives. Um, And so the Soviet Union has, you know, had did have a remarkable history and was certainly the boogeyman in uh, in in U.S. political discourse. Uh, and my my dad was actually pretty pro-Soviet. And I was like, I got to find out for myself. So I got this opportunity uh, when I was, um, I don't know, 32 years old or something, to go on a citizen diplomacy trip. Now, remember, the backdrop is that Reagan and uh, uh, I can't remember the guy's name at the time, and Dropov, there were actually a series of... Of Soviet premiers who dropped dead like Andropov a few times, <laughs> and and um, and the nuclear, the the sabers were rattling again, and you know it, it it, uh, you know it worked up my PTSD right then and there, and I got this uh, this um, invitation to be part of a citizen diplomacy trip. I believe it was 1985 or 1986, where we would meet the enemy, and um, you know it was it was mind blowing to actually see the people and feel the country, and you know the, sh- the the short version is that I mean I mean I think there's three real strong takeaways, which is one, after losing 20 million people in in World War Two they didn't want a, a nuclear war with the US and so the people were warm and friendly and uh, there was an incredibly sincere desire for peace uh, and and goodwill and a, and a sense of destiny this is kind of pretty pre-internet and wanting to like let's uh, we gotta get this together we gotta be we gotta we gotta make friends real friends long-term and, um, you know, the second part was, you know, my dad was kind of dead wrong. This was a totalitarian state and you could feel it. And it was, it was very, very, uh, it was very clear that what that was like. And it, it gave me the chills. Um, and I could go on about that, but I'll just say that the, the third thing and this kind of, kind of addresses the 44 previous trips is that I felt like I had landed in my second home, that, that, that there was this archetypal powerful force of even having lived there before um, and that kind of these were my other people across the ocean. And that I was just destined to work with them in a variety of ways, and so fast forward through tremendous amounts of, uh, I call it kind of mainstream environmental work, where we were s- providing internet access for for uh, new NGOs, environmental NGOs there, and you know it was just like, how can you how can you do mainstream? environmental work and not at some point realize that indigenous people are the original caretakers of the earth. So I was invited out to the Altai uh, in Siberia and then that shifted. So I became sort of European, Russian, environmentally focused and then it shifted out to Siberia and native peoples. And um, I guess the last thing I'll say for this this opening is that in meeting John, um, he introduced me to a woman named Lynn Roberts, who was really, uh, you know, she was jazzed about Siberia. So I was her guy. And we went over there in, I believe, 1999 for the first time with the explicit purpose of of experiencing the shamanic dimension first hand uh, yeah and that was uh that was mind-blowing to say the least
0: wow uh i wanted to ask you bill if you can if you can um briefly comment on how um the Soviet Union changed over the years vis-a-vis, um, the, uh, their form of economy, um, because Gorbachev was trying to reform it, um, around the time that you were going over there shortly after. Um, so, uh, and then everything's kind of gone. Well. Back. So, yeah, so if you could, if you could briefly enlighten us on. Yeah, um, your well, take on that. Oh, yeah.
2: I'm 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 no economist, but command and control economy doesn't work. And you know, they were when I first went over there, they were just um they were experiencing the alcoholic years of Brezhnev for the past twenty years uh before these two guys dropped brought bread. Oh, a name from the past, Chernyagin. So anyway, the the that economy doesn't work. So then they they adopted with the with this pre most uh, the latest revolution, they adopted uh, sort of cowboy capitalism and and uh yeah, just kind of run ran roughshod through their their natural resources uh with tremendous ecological consequences. I mean, I could go on about aluminum smelters and stuff like that, but it's it's dirty, awful stuff. I mean, it was dirty, awful stuff, and then it got even worse. Uh, and they experienced uh, some some openness and some, some democracy for the first time. What I thought you were going to ask me, Glenn, was about the um, <laughs> sort of like totalitarian democracy spectrum. And so I'm I'm speaking, you know, I'm speaking on a encrypted app with my Russian friends over there who are frankly terrified. And you know what what the last guy I spoke to you said was something like we never thought we would return to the Soviet Union, but it feels like that now of surveillance and 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 people being thrown in prison for you know basically for speaking their minds and speaking speaking up so I have a very um there's a lot of uh, environmentalists who are kind of uh wishy-washy about about their governmental system and i'm I've just seen too many environmentalists getting beaten up and killed uh, and native peoples getting you know getting run over to ha- to just feel like the sooner Putin is out of there, uh, and they can return hopefully to some form of the of the '90s without the super exploitative, uh, just you know, kind of stupid, un, untested capitalism. It's not that I'm a fan of capitalism, but it was just like it it, it had no no regulations and no uh, well, right. what we safeguards.
0: Yeah, I got it, I got it. It's, it's, uh, I, I don't have the inner experience you have, but I've heard some stories, so, uh, from people who've been there. And, I mean, I, I do want to talk a little bit about, uh, capitalism here with both of you here for a moment, um, because the, it seems to me like the, uh, and we, and we may return to the Soviet take and ask you about this again, Bill, but, but, uh, the, It seems to me that the merging of democracy with capitalism was uh, something that happened in the United States in a very orchestrated way. I mean, are you both familiar with the story of Edward Bernays? Uh, you know, he's the nephew of Sigmund Freud, you know, and he's, he's, he's a person probably most personally responsible for merging democracy and capitalism. I mean, beginning in the 1920s, I mean, Bernays was this, he was, he, he actually introduced techniques from his uncle, Sigmund Freud, you know, of, uh, how to really to revamp and completely uh, reinvent uh, advertising. And he's the creator of the field, public relations. He named it, you know, so he's running around the 1920s. I mean, this guy was, he was brilliant in a certain kind of way. You know, he knew how to sell things through emotional triggers, even things you would never guess, like he sold the uh, those cigarettes to women who never smoked then. He sold them as torches of freedom. Torches of freedom. So they they were selling, women had more independence while they were manipulating them to smoke. (laughs) So, I mean, Bernays was uh, very responsible for systematically using some of the, the totalitarian regime war uh, propaganda ideas and repackaging them as advertising and public relations and ever since then we've been on this path in the united states of of believing that that uh uh capitalism is going to continue so that it will always increase. There will be an infinite growth on a finite planet. And that's really where I want to get to you, both of you. I want to ask you, you know, is there something we can learn from what Bernays did or or what people have done to package capitalism? Is there a way that we can repackage, reframe, change the minds of people to uh, think in a different way, a different dream, you know, as John has spoken about, uh, and the world is as you dream it. So, you know, how can we do that? How can we restructure, uh, repackage a different way of thinking, or if you believe that's even necessary? Uh, and I'll go to you, John.
1: Well, I think it's it's important, first of all, to note that the United States – is perhaps sort of an example of one form of democracy, which isn't working very well at all today, as we know. And it's a form of a sort of a type of capitalism that isn't working well today for anybody except the very rich people. It's working well for the very rich people. They think it is anyway. Uh, and what it, it's you know what we have is I think a, a, what I call predatory capitalism. It's it's you know. The true definition of capitalism is an economic system that's uh, where the government does not own the means of production or commerce and where there's, there's, there's competition. And in the, in the case of the United States, the government doesn't own the means of, of production or commerce, but the, the owners of the means of production and commerce o- own the government. Uh, so. It's a reversal thing, and competition just isn't isn't working here. I, you know, it can work. I, mean, I live in a small town, where where this, you know, this it's, it's 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 friendly competition as part of that, and and but if some big box business wants to come in, uh, they they'll put all the other uh, drugstores and, and hardware stores and everything else out of business. We, we all know that. We know that you know, our media right now, what we're talking about here, is a monopoly, uh, and so. We don't really have a good form of capitalism, and we don't have a good form of democracy. And one of the reasons you've got Putin out there, and you've got Xi now in China, President Xi, who's who's becoming very dictatorial also, in in contrast to his couple of of, of previous presidents of China, uh, is that the United States has shown that, that what we call democracy doesn't work. And you look at the rise of the right wing around the world, including here during the Trump period. And you see one of the reasons is because people just don't believe that the democ- if we say we're a democracy and they say, well, if the United States is the example of democracy, we don't want it. It's not working. It's dysfunctional. Nothing gets done. And so things get done in China incredibly. And things, you know, things get done in Russia, too. We may not like what, what they do. We may not like the way they do them. But in fact, you know, China in the past 40 years brought 800 million people out of poverty. The whole rest of the world combined hasn't done that. And it, it, it grew from the dark ages of the culture of Mao's cultural revolution to become the second the second strongest economy in the world. If you're an Ecuadorian or a Nigerian, the head of state in one of these countries, and you're off of these two models, the United States, which is floundering, which is losing – uh, the economic battle, if you want to call it that, around the world, or China, which would you take? <laughs> you know? And you'd probably, you might say, well, I don't want, I don't want the kind of government China has, but I do want the kind of economy they have, which they describe as free markets with, with, with socialist aspects. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and they don't, so we're in a very, very interesting time, and I, I think, you know, we in the United States ought to take uh Responsibility for the terrible mistakes we've made and the terrible leadership we've shown the world. if we can turn that around, and I, and I, I believe Biden's trying to do it, but of course it's incredible. You can't. You can't, can't, can't get. You can't get things. You can't get. Yeah. I think the programs he has. Yes, there's a lot of money, but what's money? The United States, the dollar right now. He, the United States debt doesn't matter. in The United States or foreign debt doesn't matter in the United States. We can print all that we want. I'm an economist. And I can tell you. It's a, The smart thing to do is take on a lot of debt and invest in solar and wind and other environmental projects that also give people jobs. I mean, that is the smart move to make, no question about it. We need to do that, and we need to show the world that we can create a new kind of economic system because the economic system we've created, I read about this a lot, this death economy, this consuming itself into extinction that ravages resources, it's based on a goal of maximizing short-term profits, regardless of the social and environmental That's called capitalism. That's just one particular form of capitalism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you know, my, my grandson's Mennonite stand is another form of capitalism. Uh, little markets in, in, the, in, in the mountains of Ecuador or in, in the, in the steppes of Asia uh, where people are very friendly with each other. They compete, but they also are very, very friendly. That's capitalism also. And if we can move out of this idea of maximizing short-term profits that's created this terrible series of crises we're in now, we're in in an apocalyptic era that that our economic system has created. But we can turn that around and create what, what I like to call a life economy, which is an economic system that pays people to clean up pollution, to regenerate destroyed environments, to recycle, to create new technologies that don't ravage the earth. We can do that. And I, I think that's, that's the vision that, that, that Biden has. And I get lots of problems with Biden. I, I, I've never been a big fan of Biden's, but I think <laughs> the, the, the vision that he has right now that he's trying to promote is a very, very, that would serve as a good model for the world. And if we want to compete with China, we're going to have to offer the world a model here at home that works and that leads the world toward a new era what we might call a life economy, a regenerative economic system. And, 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 I'll stop it in a minute, but back
0: to your thing
1: about growth. We need growth. Mm-hmm. We need growth. We
0: need growth. Okay. We
1: need growth for food for starving people. We need growth in systems that clean up pollution. We need growth in systems that regenerate destroyed environments. We need growth in systems that bring back animals that are on the verge of extinction. We need growth in forests. We, you know, we don't need growth in materialistic crap. <laughs> we don't need growth in the kind of things that are currently used to measure GDP, right. domestic product. But let's not let's not say we don't need growth. Uh, people are starving around the world. Don't tell them that they, that they don't need growth in their agricultural and distribution systems. And and let's let's realize we need to we need growth and things that'll clean up the terrible pollution, the plastic that's floating around in all the ocean. So this yeah. concept of yes, we don't need any more of the kind of growth that we've been emphasizing, but let's not let's not say stop growth because we need growth in systems that work that take us into
0: a life economy. Okay, so what you're talking about is a restorative economy. I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with Storm Cunningham and his 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 work. About, yeah, we could be decommissioning dams. I mean, we could be creating economic growth there and improving watersheds. We could be doing certain things that are, uh, that are positive, have positive effects on the ecology that also provide jobs. It is possible, and I guess that's the way that... Uh, that Biden has been pitching the uh, his version of a Green New Deal. Well, and in a way, um,
1: it, worked, it worked with Franklin Roosevelt. The New Deal was all very
0: similar. I,
1: uh, it was yeah. both in areas that it needed to be taken care of in this country, kinds of infrastructure, electricity. That was a different time. So he, he was looking yeah. at different things than what we're looking at now. But it proved... But it works. You you can make this system work. We can change that. This is just an economic system. is only it's it's human driven. It's about humans. It's it's a social system, really. It has nothing to do with anything else. We say it has to do with money, but money is a meaningless uh, form of exchange. Really, it, it, it can work. But a lot of other things can work too, as we're seeing with with cryptocurrencies now. So there's there's many alternatives, but we're very stuck stuck in a in an old model it's not that old but it's 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 old. it's older than me uh-huh. <laughs> now, that's <old. laughs>
0: all well well i'm a little okay but i want to bring it back to bill but i want to set this up with you bill because i'm a little concerned about you're saying uh one thing that you're saying john is about you know the the the, the, the U.S. economy has become a death economy. And you, but we we're also looking at China's economy and that there are a lot of people in the world that are marveling about it because they've had this very strong economic growth, you know, about 10 percent for some 30 years or something, right? But, but China also destroyed their ecology. I mean,
1: the they, uh, uh, China's, get, China's got the same system that we do in terms of wanting to increase GDP, uh, it's what I call an economic hitman virus. And it, it actually goes back to the time of the ancient Persians and Romans. It's been around for quite a while. But we we really perfected it, and now China's perfecting it even more. There's a major difference, though, and that yes. is that China has a, has a model that they can show to the world and say, look, we've been incredibly successful. The United States doesn't have that model. And the United States, the economic hitman model, has been built on a perception of, look, Look Ecuador, look Nigeria, look wherever. Take this big loan from the World Bank and hire our companies to build infrastructure projects, electricity and so forth, systems in your country. Uh, and then you can have better trade with the United States. You can develop your economy. And it's, it's this bilateral relationship. Take, take these loans, hire our companies to build infrastructure so you can have a better relationship with the United States. China is saying, take these loans, hire our companies to build this infrastructure so you can be part of the New Silk Road and be part of uh, an international trading organization, uh, a huge, vast trading network. Ecuador, you can trade with Colombia and Peru and Brazil, as as well as China and India and the rest of the world. they, they they, They are sending out a perception and it's probably not a trooper. I don't know what it's true not, but the perception is very different from the perception that, that I was marketing as an economic hitman. It's an extremely attractive perception to leaders in other countries to be told, yeah, 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 if I build these, I use the Chinese companies instead of the American companies to build more dams and mines, etc. I then become part, of this, become part of this new Silk Road, the Belt and Road Initiative, like uh, – which is it's a it's a great selling tool. It's a great selling tool. Oh, and on top of that, maybe I can do what China's done. I can bring a whole lot of people out of poverty. The United States hasn't done that.
0: Well, okay, but um, I want to I want to turn to Bill though, and uh, w- whether it's China, Russia, U.S., the entire world is uh, th- there's different permutations on the way that we conceive of economics. And economic growth and different successes, but we all, it seems to me, have been uh, on a unsustainable path. Like Orrin Lyons talks about, you know, we're jockeys whipping a horse, and we're whipping it harder and harder to get to the finish line, without realizing that the finish line is a brick wall. You know, it's 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 I. You both have had a lot of experience with indigenous peoples and you've learned a different kind of dream, a different kind of way to look at it, look at at, at prosperity uh, and wholeness. So, Bill, how did you, how did that emerge in Russia for you and then with your work continuing in the in the American Southwest, which is where I met you because of your connection to grandfather Leon Sekatero and and. uh Is this the way that we can reverse ecological uh, destruction in this world?
2: Well, you know, when John was talking about economies made of humans, so humans are made of consciousness. I mean, we're thinking, feeling, perceiving beings. And, um, and we're, we've arguably been in a, in a 5,000 year cycle of what you could call patriarchy and the separate self. And it's a certain kind of, uh, it's a certain channel that we've been on for a long, long time as a, as a dominant culture, um, that has sort of taken over and dictated how we look at things. And that channel just keeps playing over and over again. And I think the, 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 the beauty of, of both m- meeting John originally, which I'm going to get to, and then meeting native people, uh, is that they're just on a different channel and that, you know, my invitation, who's ever listening to this is turn the channel and that mm-hmm. there's, there's a, it, there's a big, there's like a, a thousand other Stations that are playing all kinds of incredible things—music and poetry and art—and uh, and, and and the reason that John and I became buddies is that he put out, he made the word ecstasy uh, a, a you know like a, a Western conditioned um, intellectual, you know, from New York City. Could get behind ecstasy and not just as an intellectual concept, but as actually something to be felt. And you know, John's rap about oneness and ecstasy, and I hope he'll he'll talk some about that, really, really changed my head. And then I realized oh, shamanic cultures are intrinsically ecstatic. So so I guess one of the reasons I'm jazzed about this podcast is that to me changing the dream is about having the the courage to bust out of uh this super constrained I think of it as kind of English colonialist, but it's it's more than that, of of I don't really I don't feel a lot. I do a lot of thinking. I have a very kind of closed, narrow. I got to support my family. And it's just kind of like this sort of narrow box. And so for me, the the wonder and beauty and awe of, let's say, the last 30 years has been this greater expanding discovery of how much like how much more life there is to live. What, what gratitude for simple things like flowers and trees and clouds and, and, and suns and, you know, and people's hearts. Like, you know, the last thing I'll say about this is that, that, I mean, I could talk again for another hour about this is that any authentic shaman is is coming from the heart this is a this is about relationship with the heart it's about real true love and until we're until we get that all of our economies are going to be up so uh
0: wow bill how are we? You know, you do in your world, Wild Earth intensives. How do you get people to appreciate and 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 live in an ecstatic way? What's your secret sauce?
2: Thanks. That's a great question. Uh, so, Wild Earth, Wild Soul, which John wrote the foreword to, uh, is an invitation to not talk about these things in sort of. Oh, isn't that sort of a pretty intellectual concept? Uh, or uh, is it? It's not just about my own individual spiritual and emotional development. It's about the core of of uh, indigenous human relationships, which is in community, in tribe, and so it's a. So the the, the ten day experience is a. Uh, <laughs> It's an invitation by willing people to remember their indigenous souls and to do uh, all the beautiful things of laughing and playing and going on journeying and super nature connecting uh, and sharing uh who we are authentically as people. And and also very much the the pain that we all feel at at the destruction of 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 the biosphere and that all of this becomes medicine for a, a group of people to emerge at a much, much higher level. And, you know, it's my my prayer that this remembering of indigeneity, you know, if we all go, if we go back far enough in our, in our ancestry, we're all, we're, 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 we're all descendants of earth honoring cultures. And, and so I just, you know, it's been an amazing experience to, 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 to remember to come out of amnesia. So the wild earth intensive is really about that remembering Process and you know every time I do one, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a newborn in this universe,
0: in this
2: this ecstatic universe.
0: (laughs) Woo! All right, thank you, thank you. Uh, And John, I want to. I want to ask you something and actually it's my perception and I, my perception could be wrong but um, and please feel free to correct me but that somehow indigenous peoples particularly in ecuador and uh, uh, in the region where you were there seem to have chosen you they seem to have chosen you for uh, uh, because of your unique background as a bridge person to, to help connect people who are living with their feet in one worldview and people with living with another worldview. And I'm just curious what, how you feel about that. If you think my, my perception might be accurate. Um, and, and, and wh- how do you see your role in helping people connect these, these different dispa- seemingly disparate, worldviews well glad i yeah so
1: <laughs> i was a peace corps volunteer deep in the amazon 1968 to 1971 in ecuador uh with and i was living with the schwa people indigenous people there and they were living in, at that time they were very traditional hunter and gatherer lives that, that's changed over the years. I became very ill. I was dying, and I was three-day, incredibly difficult hike and, and, and journey to the nearest medical facility. I couldn't do it. A shaman saved my life, and that's another story. I won't go into the detail now. But uh, over basically overnight, he saved my life. He, he cured me, and and I just graduated from business school, and. And, you know, I didn't, I was not what you'd call woo-woo at all. But there were no medical facilities around, so I, I, I let this shaman do his work on me. And it was amazing. And then as payment, he requested that I become his apprentice. I had no desire to be a shaman's apprentice. You know, it was 1969 at the time, and, you know, there was no future in shamanism. I graduated from business school, but you guys saved my life. You know, so what am I going to do? So I ended up becoming his apprentice. And... Um, he told me that he'd been looking for someone like me for a long time that he 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 was looking for someone who had a connection with the outside world that could, that could also come to understand his and uh, I just happened to stumble into it i don 't I don't know that I was chosen, but you know some some you know uh, somehow I ended up in that, in that position and uh and 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 i ignored it for i mean i i took the shamanic training which basically revolved it was very fascinating to me it revolved around the idea that we create reality by creating but through our perceptions that there is no united states there is no you know capitalism as i just explained can take many forms depending on how you perceive of the goal of capitalism and you know the indigenous people as as bill mentioned uh, they, they have this very long-term view for ecstasy, for, for, my, for, for what I've learned, for them to say, you need to live an ecstatic life, that means you need to leave, feel connected to everything. Uh, that doesn't mean you need to always be around happy with a smile on your face. No, no, no. You know, when my mom was dying with a, a, a stroke, she was in a very difficult position, but I connected with her in a way that I'd never connected with her uh, before. Uh, while she was lying in a hospital bed, totally paralyzed except for her hand. And she was able to communicate me about my, through my hand as I read her things that I was writing. I was working on the book, The World As You Dream It. And it was an ecstatic experience. It, it certainly wasn't fun. Uh, she was dying. You know, it was tough. But it was ecstatic in that I connected with her. And I think, that, you know, the ecstasy of being in nature uh, we, we can, you know, I can, if I go into nature when I, sometimes if I'm, if I'm sad about something, so said, a friend, a friend just recently last week died and, you know, I go into the woods here and I can be very sad and, and, but I connect with it. I'm ecstatic because I'm connecting and I'm connecting with him, the spirit. I can feel it. I can, you know, so where am I going with this? So anyway, oh, so, so then after I got out of peace where I did what I've been trained to do, in business school, I became an economist. i was, you know, I hit man. I, that's what I'd been trained to do for 10 years. But then afterwards, when I quit, I went back to the Amazon. So I suppose mm-hmm. I was filling this mission that the, <laughs> that the shaman had seen for me, though I didn't see it that way at all. I simply decided that I'd been hearing how the, the area that I'd lived in thought was so beautiful was being destroyed, and I wanted to help the people save it. And at that point, they then said, well, if you want to save these forests, I uh, don't try to change us. Change your people. It's the dream of your people. It's the modern dream of, 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 of conception of big buildings, of lots of cars, of heavy industry. That's what's destroying the world. So change that. So I came back and formed a non-profit called Dream Change, which partnered with, with Bill's organization. And, and as he mentioned, uh, Lynn Roberts was part of the Dream Change. and. We partnered to do trips to to, to his territories in, in Siberia mm-hmm. and in the Asian steppes. But we also did a lot of trips to South America. I still do them every year. I take people to the Kogi of Colombia and the Maya of Guatemala and to the Amazon. That's all on my website, johnperkins.org. So we, that, the dream change still exists. But out of that, also go to the Pachamama Alliance, which I also am a founder mm-hmm. of, and, and is and now in, all, I think, 90 countries. Uh, ch- working on changing the dream as well as working with indigenous people in the Amazon. Same mission, to use indigenous wisdom to create a more environmentally sustainable, spiritually fulfilling uh, uh, world, socially just world, to, 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 to turn that dream around, to create this, to realize it by changing our perception of what it means to be humans on this planet. Uh, we can make that happen. We can, we can turn this around. We can, in essence, create a life economy. And this life economy I dis- described before, that's exactly what indigenous people traditionally have. And as Bill said, yes. we all come from there, Through, throughout most of the 250,000 years or so that we've seen ourselves as humans, we've lived in a life economy. It's an yes. economic system that, that, that is sustainable, that's regenerative, yes. that has as its goal passing on as good a life or better the future generations, and for for 250,000 years we've enjoyed that type of system. It's only been within the last few centuries that we've moved away from it. And you can you can actually start to date it back to the agricultural revolution, I suppose. But it's really been within the last few centuries, and especially in the last few decades, and even in the last few years, that we've seen it get worse and worse and worse. Yeah. So we've got more and more into this degenerative uh, type of economic system. But human beings, throughout, you know, we know how to live with the planet. We know how to live as a part of the planet, rather than apart from the planet. But in recent years, we we seemed to to determine ourselves to live as a part from the planet. We really look at ourselves as aliens. We are right from the natural world. We've alienated ourselves from the planet. Mm. We've said. Mm. You know, we we're like pulling the strings. We're we're up above. We're pulling the strings.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's beautiful. It's kind of Carl Jungus actually. You know, like the way he used to talk about UFOs. You know, as kind of uh, some kind of function of our collective unconscious. And I just was. laughing at that we almost as you were speaking it, we've alienated yes we've become aliens here to our own planet but i'm gonna i'm gonna turn this conversation just a little we're gonna have we're unfortunately we're running out of linear time which if we were just being indigenous we could just explode and just say forget about it but but um you know this country the united states where we're uh, or convening in at this moment... this country was influenced by Native America a lot more than people realize. So I'm hopeful this is, you know, I personally wrote a book about this called Original Politics you know, and the real the dream of, uh, some, of the, some of the highest ideals that we cherish, hold sacred in the United States were actually borrowed or um, and in some cases only partially borrowed, but were borrowed from Native America. Liberty, equality, natural rights. Now, some people might argue that those concepts came over from, you know, some European philosophers like Rousseau and whatnot, but I would would argue that even those European philosophers were really inspired by what was happening and discovered in the United States among indigenous peoples, you know, and it was... It's 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 very easy to document. It's Chief Canastago, who who's the you know the Onondaga chief that tells Ben Franklin and all the colonies to unite in the first place because they were thirteen disparate economies and 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 governments and he got them to unite and later they form this this idea that you know the roots of federalism even come out of. Native America, the way the Iroquois or the Hohonochohni Confederacy operated, you know, um, but they also, all the founding fathers, obviously, only took from Native America what they were, uh, or how they understood it, or what they wanted to appropriate. So, for instance, they left out the women who had a very central role in, in the iroquois confederacy the women were it had to be two-thirds of the of the women's clans to in order to have a treaty or to declare war it was the women who appointed the male chief and had the right to remove him if he committed malfeasance of any kind all those things seem to come into america so so but it was a half-baked it was a half-baked vision but in in my most optimistic side i do feel despite all the permutations and gosh you know you you guys are fantastic people to have on the podcast because you have insight into world relations that very few people have. But what we have in America is some unfolding, like Theodore Parker said and Barack Obama confirmed you know that that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice i mean we native people were very inclusive they included the women they included obviously they included people of different uh sexuality they included you know ev- everybody was part of the whole um and Yet in America, in fits and starts, we've done that too. We've gradually become more inclusive. Would you agree about that? <laughs> you know, so it's like, how do we get, and at the same time, we also have this kind of the new vision that came in where we prioritized, uh, uh materialism too much. So, so how can we recover that? How can we speak through and to this land and reindigenize to this land, the United States that originally spoke to Indigenous peoples and could still speak to us now? That's really my question to you. How can and for our listeners, how do how do we do that? How do we reindigenize to the land and recover that spirit? Bill,
2: I, I want to jump in, Glenn.
0: Yeah, with the, please.
2: With the headline of what I'm going to say is listen. Listen to Native people, listen to people of color, and listen to the earth. And the, the, the direct connection with you, Glenn, is, is Leon Secatero, our mutual, Thank you. Uh, incredibly wise, uh, deep, prophetic. Um, I think of him as an ancestor who is uh, cheering us on at this moment to continue his work, all three of us. And he would say to all, he would invite everybody of all colors and colors and persuasion to come into the, the petroglyph territory of, uh, of the Southwest way back out in the bush. And he would look at us and he would just say, we're the five fingered ones and we need to get together, uh, for the sake of, of Mother Earth. Uh, it, it, it this here, this land, uh, and right now, the, the 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 three of us are sitting in different parts of Turtle Island, so it's listening to the power of the earth coming through us to say, "This is the place." Like I get very I get very, mo- very kind of choked up about this. This is our destiny in this country. And we can choose it or not choose it. I choose it and I know you guys do too, which is that inclusivity that you talked about and of unity that was Leon's favorite word, unity. So you know, a teacher like that after after genocide, basically saying, okay, you uh, you you white people outnumber us ten to one. You better learn these ways and learn them good and learn them with respect. And I feel incredible honor and gratitude that he was willing to to do that. And he was a complete game changer in my life
0: and mine. Yeah, I love. Thank you, Leon. Hmm. So thank you, Bill. That was beautiful. Um, John, any last thoughts on? Uh, we we just have a few minutes now, so yeah. any last thoughts on where you feel would be the the direction we need to move?
1: Well, like what Bill said, let's listen. Um, the Earth is speaking very, very clearly to us. Uh, it's been speaking to us through hurricanes and fires and rising oceans for quite a while now, but we've looked at all those things as local. Uh, so if you survive the hurricane. Uh, you expected the outside world to come to your help, uh, to bring in water and food and so forth. It was, it was a local event. Even though we may, we may have known that it was caused by global climate change, we really didn't, we didn't feel that. We felt that it was local. And now we've all been hit by the pandemic, by the virus, the whole world, everybody, every, every living creature, every, everything on this planet has been impacted by that virus. It, we, we have to say, see that the world, that the Pachamama, Mother Earth is speaking to us. And nature is inspiring to help us understand uh, that we must change. And, you know, we are truly in apocalyptic times now. Uh, <laughs> places are burning up. Uh, places are flooding. There's droughts and there's floods and there's pandemics and there's, you know, all manner of problems. And crisis, We're being sent a very strong message. So what does an apocalypse do for you? Well, it can destroy you. Or you can learn to, yeah, you can learn to, you know, open the Red Sea and walk, 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 walk with the Red Sea, basically. You can, you can move through the apocalypse and come out on the other side, but you've got to listen. And the earth is speaking to us. Pachamama is a living being that's speaking to us. And let's listen and, and, and move on and turn this death economy into a life economy. We can do this. It's not a big deal. Really. It doesn't mean we gotta go back and live in caves. But it mean, it does mean that we've gotta make some adjustments in our lifestyles, some major adjustments. And we also have to recognize that we don't want to light our homes anymore with, with, uh, with petro, with, with petroleum, uh, or, or coal, with fossil fuels. Uh, we want to light our homes uh, in ways that we don't even want to use centralized systems to light our homes. Who needs all these big transmission lines. We can put things, we can localize all of that. So it's a very, very important time for us right now as human beings. And I do believe it's going to determine whether we, we survive in the form that we know ourselves to be. I, I think humans will survive in one form or another. But how do, how do we want to make that adjustment? And do we want to make the adjustment ourselves or do we want to just have the adjustment forced on us?
0: Yes, 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 yes. So, uh, beautiful, beautiful thoughts. Thank you. Thank you both. You're, you're, you're two extraordinary human beings and I feel very blessed, uh, to have you on this program today. And, uh, uh, we have contributed to, to the regeneration of the earth in the way that we know how. And I am grateful for that. Thank you so much. This program is made possible in part by Select Books, Waterside Publications, BizGenics, and the Web Talk Radio program, Native Flute Music by Orlando Secatero from the Pathways CD, Liberty Song by artist Ron Cratter, written by Ron Cratter, Jim Casey, and Danny Casey, Post-production editing by Scout Media Strategies. The Circle for Original Thinking is a grassroots think tank whose mission is to seek out the deep origins of temporary thought in order to remember and restore, sometimes I think restory heart-centered wisdom for humanity and all our relations on Earth. You can follow this podcast on Spotify, the Apple Podcast Network, Listen Notes, and all the places podcasts are fi- found, and you can also find uh, uh, my this podcast on OriginalThinking.us or OriginalPolitics.us, and that's where you can find and purchase my books, Original Thinking, Original Politics, there. Thank you, John. Thank you, Bill. I really enjoyed this, um, and uh, until next week, many blessings of good health and well-being too.